podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Is there such a thing as a scholar when it comes to La Cosa Nostra? Well, our guest today comes pretty close to fitting that description. Hello, everybody. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report, the show that tries to dig deep into helping you understand the depths of organized crime, helping you understand what's going on with the mob, the culture surrounding the mob, the history, the pop culture. And uh, my guest today is someone who has studied this, written about it, spoken about all this stuff for years, and her- certainly has steeped himself into the whole culture of mafiadom in a manner that very few other people ever have. It uh, gives me a great deal of pleasure. Welcome. Christian Cipollini, he's an author, a crime historian, a comic book writer, and a mob lecturer. Christian, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Frank, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, Christian, you've been covering this stuff for a while. You've been writing about this material for a while, speaking about it for a while. What sparked your initial interest in covering crime in general and organized crime specifically? I, you know, the, it was a slow burn. There there wasn't a singular incident, but when I look back in a nutshell, uh, my dad was a narcotics cop, and uh, I, I like to tell the story that I had a, a close friend who whose father, a strange father, happened to be uh, of a, a... He was a drug mule. <laughs> so it was like I had this kind of growing up a little bit of both worlds that were in the back of my head. And then as I got a little older, I was fascinated with biographies and kind of cultural books. And you realize organized crime is, whether we like it or not, is woven into Americana, I guess is the best way to put it. So, you know, as time went on, I realized it was kind of driving me or I don't know, I the allure of finding those needles in the haystack of history. Why is this relevant? Why does this even happen? So, you know, jump ahead and, you know, years later, after consuming a bunch of books that I later found out some of them were probably not that accurate, you know, I decided, well, maybe I can find something. One of the subjects that you've spent a lot of time talking about, writing about, speaking about is Murder, Inc., right? And now I think a lot of us, even people that don't really even pay attention to mob stories or anything like that. We've all heard the term Murder, Inc., but a lot of folks may not really understand what that is. Explain to the uninitiated who might be listening to us who or what was Murder, Inc. That's a really good question uh, that you ask. Um, Murder, Inc. was a term, first of all, that was uh, slapped on this group of people by the press. You know, back in 1940, when they realized there was this this syndicate arm of particularly the New York mob, whose basically their their main job was to enforce the rules of the mob. Um, Murder Inc. was made up of 
guys that were from uh, both Jewish and Italian backgrounds, and they were selected essentially to insulate the bosses and to take orders to enforce. And for those that don't know, uh, you know, I always I always say this. I said it in that book too. The mob didn't exist to hurt people. The mob existed to make money. But when you're a self-policing entity, you know, bad things are going to happen because you're enforcing, you know, the laws and rules within your own group. And Murder, Inc. was essentially created. We, we uh, historians kind of aren't sure what year, but we're thinking 1932-ish is probably when the bosses were like, okay, let's set up some kind of division, if you will. So these guys, most of them, the early core group was called from Brooklyn, um, from Ocean Hill and uh, uh, Brownsville. Was, was But they had an extension. These guys could be used around the country if necessary. You, uh, by the way, you wrote a book about it. If people are interested in this subject, I do recommend it. It's called Murder, Inc. Mysteries of the Mob's Most Deadly Hit Squad. I haven't read it yet, but it is on my list. And if people want to get that, by the way, Christian, the best way to do that, just go to Amazon and search your name or search the yeah. book's title. Am- Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm re- I have a website, but I'm completely overhauling it. And I, when it's back up, they can even get a signed copy if they so desire once my website's up. But for now, yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. So uh, when you when you say that Murder, Inc. was essentially this police force of the mob or, or a way for the bosses to insulate themselves in some respect from getting their hands dirty, who were the bosses that gave Murder, Inc. their orders? Who did Murder, Inc. report to? Another good question. Directly, uh, well, uh, like any organization, they they also had uh, like um, a guy in between, even the guy in between. But the two main bosses who would usually call down to the direct guy to call down to the guys, the two main bosses were Louis Lepke Buchalter and Albert Anastasia. So you had a Jewish guy and an Italian guy, both members of the larger mob commission, as it's so-called. Uh, you know, they, which, I don't know, maybe it's not a good time to separate two. The, the mafia and the mob aren't exactly synonymous. The mob was the larger group of Jewish, Italian, some Irish guys. Uh, the mafia was a part of that commission. So help us out uh, on that one as well. Uh, so the mafia, if we're looking at a Venn diagram of the mob and the mafia, is the mafia a circle within the Venn diagram of the mob? This is a really good point. When when you look at organized crime as a whole and people say, you know, the mob, okay, so the mafia is one entity within that big picture. The other entity, if you were really to break it into two, would be the Jewish faction, particularly in the 1930s, 40s, even in the 50s. It was, the mafia was the main shot callers, but as we know, those that are familiar with the five family structure, those five families were set up and they handled their own business. But if there was a problem or 
not even a problem, but something that needed discussed, they would all, the heads would get together, you know, to discuss it for the benefit of the entire entity. The commission, as it was called, was something that Lucky Luciano and those guys kind of put into place where it's like, okay, the mafia and the mafia families run their show, but if it's a big picture problem, we bring in the advisors such as Meyer Lansky, you know, Louis Bukalter, uh, for a little while, Dutch Schultz. Um, so the Jews kind of, not entirely, but some assimilated into legitimate business, you know, 1950s and on, so that it wasn't as prevalent and it became more about the five families in the extended families. But yeah, in the, in the large diagram, you know, and usually and speaking of diagrams, Frank, you, you know, you've probably seen those charts that were used in the 1960s during the, uh, uh, you know, Senate inquiries where they showed the mafia family hierarchies. Those aren't entirely accurate, but mm. it, it only showed specific families Whereas the mob was so much bigger than that, I know I'm kind of off on a tangent here. And oh, no, that's okay. Place. That's okay. Uh, we we uh, we like uh, getting into the nitty gritty. That that that's all good. Now, uh, the other thing that's interesting about your characterization of Murder Inc. is that it was multi ethnic. You point out that it wasn't just Italian, but it was Italian, Jewish, and Irish. That um, does not go along with a lot of people's preconceived notion of La Cosa Nostra organized crime, the mob, the mafia, uh, as a bunch of goombas who get together uh, after cooking Sunday sauce and uh, go out and, and kill people. But the mafia um, maybe did have an Italian bent, but the broader mob, you could be Jewish, Irish, etc., and still be a pretty high-ranking member. Is that accurate? Yeah, in, in, in a way it is. Um Think of it like uh, the Jewish, the Jewish guys who were extremely important, um, particularly during the Great Depression. If we're talking about that era, because that was the ten years murdering basically reigned <laughs> with no one stopping them. Um, it would be like if you looked at today, where hey, so and so is an associate of the whatever family. He's not a made member. He's you know. He's a guy that does business with them. It was sort of like that, except that back at, in that time period, it seems that the the Jewish faction had a hell of a lot of say. Mm -hmm. And and this multi-ethnic, that really goes back to 1931 when Luciano, Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Frank Costello, Al Capone, all these guys kind of realized we need to change for the times and Part of that was taking on this multi-ethnic view. They didn't create that view. It existed a little bit already, but Luciano and his group really took it to the next level where it's like the only color that matters is green. So why would we not do business with, you know, someone outside our, our group, even with between Sicilians and, and, you know, Southern Italians that, you know, there was, there was strife. It, it's very tribal Luciano. And I'm using him because he was like the face of it. 
they wanted to eliminate the tribalism because they saw too much potential being wasted in terms of business. You mentioned that it was the the press that gave this group their name Murder Inc. One would assume that a name like Murder Inc., given by anybody, doesn't get bestowed unless a group is pretty violent. Does that shoe fit? Was Murder Inc. a particularly violent group? They were. I think what really drew me to that story, now there there to back up, there was a book written by the main prosecutor of Murder, Inc. in the early 1940s. He wrote a book in the 50s, and it's very telling. It's fascinating. But, you know, you realize it's also from one side. So I I try to look at everything. And why did they call it Murder, Inc.? And they had other names before someone which I put in my book, the couple theories where that originated, but the press, you know, they were looking for catchy headlines. Uh, Brooklyn combination was one, the killer combination, things like that. Murder Inc. actually really did fit because as it turned out, um, these guys were on call killers, but to answer your question, were they really that brutal? The core group of them, This is just, in my research and my personal view of it, a few of these guys really walked a fine line between full-on psychopath serial, what we would call serial killer today, versus, yeah, I just go out and, you know, shoot somebody when they tell me to and go home and have dinner. Uh, Some of them relished, enjoyed it a little too much, uh, from you know, it was almost like an escapade. For example, so, who who were some of the characters that uh, are known for their particular bloodlust? The the most brutal of the group was the core group, say five six guys. Um, for the Italians, it was Harry Happy Mayone, um, Frank the Dasher Abandando. For the Jews, it was Abe Kid Twist Relis, who happened to turn state's witness, but some of my colleagues truly believe he was the most vicious. And uh, Harry Pittsburgh, Phil Strauss, Martin Bugsy Goldstein. These guys were the ones that their names were attached to almost every brutal murder. You know, because not every hit is, well, I guess it's all brutal, but, you know, what's the difference between stabbing somebody 60 times with an ice pick and then throwing them weighted down in a pond versus, you know, shooting a guy in the head and taking off? Not that one's better than the other, but to to paint the picture for you, these guys allegedly once then had a party after they lit a body on fire with their girlfriends. Wow. Like it was a celebration. And again, you know, take things with a grain of salt too. Organized crime history has a lot of folklore mixed in. I have found, however, that um, in the case of Murder Inc., at least their core group, these guys really did seem to have a uh, propensity for extreme. Uh, feeling out of 
this enforcement duty, like to the point where bloodlust. This is where I even agree with the prosecutor at the time in his way of saying, you know, you look into their eyes and you see no love, no hate, no nothing. Yeah, they were kind of like that. Uh, That book by the prosecutor, you talk about it being one sided and obviously that's not surprising. And every book I've ever read by a prosecutor (laughs) certainly fits that description. But uh, and the prosecutor was Burton Turkus, right? Correct. What did you find was one sided to the point of misleading? Because I know it was that book that sort of helped uh, craft the whole narrative of Murder, Inc., which uh, people still go by and historians still refer to to this day. Was there anything that you found particularly biased to the point of being overtly inaccurate? Uh, A specific example uh, I'm going to use Luciano's name, and, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I, I remember the first time I ever read it, long before I was actually you know, a crime historian, I thought, oh, wow, this lucky Luciano guy, he must be a killer like the rest of them. And not, you know, I, I know without trying to sound like, oh, well, this guy was better than him or, or less mean or, or criminal, but... I found out later, Turkish kind of Turkish painted everyone whose name came across his desk as almost equals, and and I don't know if that's how a prosecutor would naturally do it or what, but I, I it struck me later as I think this guy's kind of using a blanket, like they're all evil, but you'll use one of their own as your witness. Uh, yeah, like I, I found that kind of misleading. Wait, no, it's like in any case, th- there's things that are subjective and people are individuals and you better take mm. their crimes or their psychology at their own. And I understand it's a, it was a different time period, but not even a specific thing to your to your question. What made me even think it was very one-sided. And naturally, when somebody writes a book or a memoir, I wouldn't call it a memoir, but, you know, it was his take on it. Uh, the the language alone of how in, in that time period you could get away with it. I mean, he called them everything, but, you know, their mother's a whole, you know what I mean? Like, the way he described them, okay, I get it, they were bad guys, but it, you know, I'm not seeing sure. any other angles. It's just, okay, here, this whole group of Italian and Jews are evil. That, that, I know this, it's not directly answering your question. Sure, but no, 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 I'll take what, it. Yeah, it's what kind of really drove me to be like, wait, is there a third side to this story? Even a, a second side? And, I, and don't get me wrong, the book's great. I recommend anybody who hasn't read it. it it's it's interesting just remember, take it from the prosecutor sure. whose sole goal under his boss was to execute every person they could. How long was the sort of reign of, of murder rank? How you mentioned their founding in the in the 30s. How long were they around for doing their thing? My estimation is they were going for possibly 10 years. Uh, I'm saying somewhere around eight. And and that's a lot. You figure eight years of basically law enforcement having almost zero clue 
that there even mm. was this distinguishable syndicated group within a syndicated group. Because those guys, you know, once all was said and done in 1940, they figured out they couldn't even estimate it was 50 people. Then it was up to 200 people could have been killed nationwide by mostly the core group. But they also had an extension of people that like, hey, you owe so-and-so, you you know this guy, we got to take him out, so you're going to go do it. That kind of situation happened, too. How did, in this country, not talking about going back to the roots of the mafia in the, in the hills of Sicily, in this country, in the United States, how did the mafia or the mob, and take that answer however you want to, uh, take the question however you want to take it, uh, get started in America? How did things really take root, and what era would you say was really the heyday of the mob in this country? Interesting question, two-part. Okay, I'll address the first. Like any ethnic groups that came over here, settled in New Orleans or New York City, uh, you know, you they got into their own little enclaves where, well, they were forced to, but, you know, where they felt comfortable. The problem is, particularly with the Italians, you already had what would later be called the black hand. These guys would prey on their own, in their own neighborhoods. Um, 1931 is the year that, that changed everything in the United States, in, starting in New York, really. When, again, these quote-unquote young Turks of guys like Luciano, Lansky, and the rest decided, hey, we got to make some progress. Let's take out anybody who's old school and start anew. It's, it began here in you know, small neighborhoods uh, where people were preying on their own people. That is how the mafia really, in that word, started to finally reach the newspapers in the late 1800s. This mafia, this, you know, low mano nera, uh, this, you know, mysterious entity that was preying on its own people. Uh, as time went on, you know, the younger guys, including other ethnic groups, saw how that was not really the way of the future. I guess, if you were to go into their heads, you know, I don't know what else they were thinking, but that was a big part. Now, you ask, what was the heyday? I'm sure any historian or researcher you ask might have a different uh, take on this. I say the heyday was the 1930s, and then maybe again in the 40s when Vegas took off. Hmm. But I stand by, and maybe it's just because I'm stuck in that era, I, I really think the heyday was for the six, you could even say 10 years, before Murder, Inc. was discovered and before Lucky Luciano took the fall for everything in 36. Their heyday, if you ask me, was not very long, but I think it was so important on the entire future of this underworld existence, which we still have today. Very interesting. And uh, again, if you're interested in learning more about Murder, Inc., I certainly recommend Christian Cipollini's uh, book. It is available on uh, Amazon. Just search 
C-I-P-O-L-L-I-N-I. A whole world opens up. How would you say that Murder, Inc., the press coverage of their activities, the manner in which they carried out their crimes, the hierarchical structure within the mob uh, that uh, that led to them carrying out these these crimes, how would you say that impacted the future of organized crime in this country. Was that a game changer in any way, or was that the way business always was done and always would be done after that? How did organized crime react to sort of the murder ink phenomenon? Uh, another great question, Frank. I, I truly believe murder ink set a precedent that would evolve, devolve, and be altered as time went on. But why I say it was a precedent is prior to that, yes, you had hitmen and assassins, like, you know, the gunslingers of criminal groups. This was, to our knowledge, the first time people sat down and said, okay, let's bring together a group of the baddest SOBs we can find that are still loyal and and have them carry out whatever duties we need. Ever since then, as you know, there's it, it's again devolved and evolved, but there's been cases, you know, all the way through the decades beyond that where there were guys whose job was to do that. Maybe not to the extent where you had a group of five or six particular people sitting in a candy shop in Brooklyn waiting for a phone call, you know, maybe not like that anymore, but you still have groups who, uh, I mean, you even look at, um, you know, within certain crews of the mob, there may have been crews that that wasn't their main job to, to whack people, Mm -hmm. but they may have been the group like, Oh, yeah, but those guys are the ones that are good at it. it. It's, it's different, but to answer your question, I do think murdering set a frightening precedent, but if you think of it also from an underworld business standpoint, that was genius. And it worked for, you think about it, eight, nine, 10 years or whatever. That's a long time. That oh, That's for sure. Especially in mob terms. We, yeah. um, you, you know, we don't hear very much about, killings done by the mob these days. Obviously, we heard a lot about the killing of uh, Gambino crime family boss uh, Frank Cali. I think part of the reason it got so much news is because mafia killings have become so rare. What happened? Why don't we hear about mob killings uh, at all anymore? Did the mob just wake up one day and decide we're no longer going to be killing people? What happened? You know, it makes you wonder sometimes. Uh, But I I really think it plays into the whole evolution of empires. Uh, There's always going to be an evolution, well, or something dies, okay? It it evolves or it dies. The mob isn't even, the American mafia, it, it may not be the top dog on the list, whereas, you know, cartels pretty much internationally run the show now. And that's like anything else, like the Roman Empire, you know, they're, it's not going to last forever, but there's still an existence. Why aren't there as many mob hits like there was even back in the 80s? Times change. You either change with them or you die. I think the mob, you know, adapted. 
okay, here, there's different business models. And guess what? There's a camera on every block and every millennials walking around with one on TikTok. So mm. it's not as easy to eliminate your enemy. And, and if from a, another pragmatic point of view, was it ever that beneficial to just drop bodies? You know, let the bodies hit the floor may have worked in certain eras uh, to reach an end, but did it really? I, I know it's kind of like that question. Uh, well, nobody can answer. It's rhetorical. The point is organized crime groups ad adapt, at least the ones that survive. And I think the American mob realized there's other ways to make money and you don't have to necessarily kill somebody. And even if we want to, there's going to be cameras all over the place. You can't just get away with it. You can't leave a body. I mean, you can, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a hell of a lot harder. And who wants to take that flack? No, that, that, that's for sure. You, when we think of, the mob, we think of maybe books, documentaries, uh, nonfiction novels uh, or, you know, fictional novels or nonfiction paperbacks. We think of uh, dramatic films like Casino, The Godfather, Goodfellas. You don't generally think of a comic book, but you have actually managed to have a pretty interesting, pretty remarkable comic book called Lucky all about uh, a mob figure. Tell me about this comic book. Uh, how long you've been doing it? Uh, what sparked your, 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 what was the impetus for doing it? And uh, how can people check it out? Uh, well, thanks. Um, yeah, that was something never expected or planned. Uh, long story short, uh, my good friend and colleague, Seth Ferranti, approached me and said he was thinking about doing a line of comic books, kind of throwbacks to those pulpy, you know, crime ones that existed in the 50s, 60s, 40s, uh, even though they were very bent on, uh, you know, those goombas, uh, you know, slack-jawed, kind of totally, I guess, not politically correct. But he wanted to do something that was more contemporary and had a relevance to it. So I thought, okay, well, Lucky Luciano is a guy like many of them whose story's been told a gazillion times, but you know what? I don't know that all the cool stuff has really been told or explored. I wrote a book about him and I thought, well, geez, there's even stuff I found out after I wrote the book. So I thought it'd be fun too, because this guy had a pretty incredible life. And we decided to do it in a four part and I chose uh, to do his first era. And I say that because I think Lucky's life was split in two sections up until 1936 when he went to jail and post 1946 uh, you know, when he got out of jail. I decided to do the early years from when he was a kid on the streets of lower Manhattan up through and including the government's case against him. And it came out pretty fun. We had a, we got an art, we chose an artist that I liked. And it's funny because the artist had never drawn like mob related kind of stuff ever. Didn't even know this history. So it was like a learning for him. And I gained a new respect for the comic book mm. and graphic novels world. I 
was schooled by my editor really on the art of writing a script for a comic book because you're not just writing for the reader, you're writing for the colorist, the artist, the letterer, <laughs> all this stuff, stuff that I gained a new respect wow. for everybody in that business. Because, you know, as a writer, I had written, you know, some like I'd taken screenplay classes, things like that, and it's similar. But you know, there's a lot goes into it, Frank. Anyway, I'm really proud of it. The point is, I, I think it's really a fun, cool, and historically, you know, pretty. We try to keep it on the mark. So the history is pretty accurate. Yeah, that's what I try to do is point out all those even anecdotal weird stuff, like even about Lucky's tattoos. Throw that in there. His his girlfriend, uh, she had the tragic life of her own. It was like crazy but true truth is stranger than fiction kind of stuff but stick to it murder inc you know they they come in subtly uh all all the neat little stories even some of the ones that didn't make it into my book and the, the best in, w- in a graphic novel way the best way for people to get that is amazon or elsewhere yes currently okay here's the all four issues are now released on amazon uh, it's only digital right now. Uh, we have some physical copies of the first issue. Once my website's up, I'll put some of those back up for sale. But they're finishing the touches on the extended graphic novel version, all four packed in there with, it's like a director's cut. Great. Uh, where all the you know script pages, backstories, photos, all that stuff. That's going to be coming out probably later this year. But if anybody wants to read, one copy or any of the four chapters, they're all on Amazon Kindle right now. Well, the, I, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to wait for the hard copy, I think, because uh, I do like comic books, but I like to uh, feel them and leaf through them rather than read them right. uh, digitally. Now, uh, you've been so complimentary with the questions that uh, that I've asked. Perhaps I should have asked this question before going into your comic book, Lucky. Charles Lucky Luciano, uh, one of the best-known names in mob history. Who was Lucky? Lucky Luciano, and why was he such a big deal? Lucky Luciano, uh, in my opinion, is, like most of us, multidimensional. And I'll just take it back to what you asked about Burton Turkis, and I'm not just trying to pick on Burton Turkis, but uh, he did paint a lot of these guys as as one-dimensional. The thing that I found, I think, what draws me into it is is what everybody is drawn into it, is you're trying to figure out, is there any way to relate to these people? Like, what is it? What makes them tick? Uh, are, they, are they pure evil? Or are they just opportunists? Luciano, I, I can't even put my finger on the pulse of why I was so drawn to it, except that. I felt compelled to try to figure out as much as I could about that guy and, and get rid of some of the myths, even the hype, you know, like get down to it. He is multidimensional. And yes, some have credited him as like the godfather of the American mafia, which is kind of funny in a way because he never wanted there to be a, like a one boss system, Hmm. but, but some have pointed out in past historical accounts that while true, people were drawn to him in a way that he probably knew. And he, uh, I think Nicholas Gage, I'll give him credit because I think he said the quote. I wish I had come up with it. Lucky was first 
among equals. And if you really think about that, yeah, that's it. He was like the top guy, but everybody had a say. Um, I don't know. I wasn't in his head, but uh, if he really wanted to be top, top guy or not, I don't know. But he was fascinating because he did become the poster boy for the change in the mob as America knew it. You know, in 1931, he re- the, the, this wasn't myth. He actually was one of the main people behind overthrowing the old guard, if you will. And that did, it changed it. It was like, a, it was like turning the mob into a corporation, hmm. for better or worse, you know, depending on how you look at it. It's, but I, it, I think it's still sewn into the fabric of Americana, like I said at the beginning of the show. I think he was a big part of it. And, and he was the one that organized the Mafia Commission to begin with, right? Yes, that was, that was a lot of his doing and the guys that were in his, I, I always say this, Frank, it was like an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. You can't, you, Hollywood couldn't even make something up like this. You had Al Capone, you had Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Albert Anastasia, Frank Costello. These guys were the guys that reshaped the American mob for better or worse. Um, they're the ones that did it. And Lucky, unfortunately, also became the government's poster boy of all things bad. That's that's what happens when you become the figurehead, well, the, the I, downside. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the government's interaction with him on multiple different different levels in uh, in in a in a bit. But um, when it comes to we you know we've talked with uh, other journalists and other historians about people like Vincent. Chin Giganti, who was the boss of the Genovese crime family, basically Lucky Luciano was the first head of what became the Genovese crime family, wasn't he? You're exactly right. Yes, when when they formed that, you know, initial five family system in New York, it was yeah Luciano's family eventually became the Genovese family. In fact, God, even in my muddled historian head i forget are any of them even named what they originally were there was the gagliano there was the luciano luciano became his family became the genovese family which is an irony in and of itself because vito genovese became the arch enemy you know one time close friend of luciano and those guys he basically in my view backstabbed all those guys hmm. to have his own family. Hmm. Uh, that and is... he took and he took Luciano's. Um, how did Lucky Luciano get his name? Ah, uh, one one of the the top five big myths. Uh, you know, the, back in the day, the press usually got it wrong and said, "Oh, because he survived being taken for a ride in 1929." The fact Luciano was indeed taken for a ride and left for dead, but his nickname, he had had Lucky for many years. It, at least, uh, I figured, what was he, like 31, then 32, 33. He, uh, he had that nickname since he was about 14, 15 years old. He didn't get, he wasn't lucky he survived the ride. He had it literally tattooed on his forearm since he was a teenager. Wow. We don't know where it, 
Frank Costello had said at some point that he didn't even like that name and that it was because he was lucky at dice. Other people said it was Lucky's choice because he knew people would gravitate to the Lucky ones and the fact that no one could pronounce his damn name. <laughs> so they would say, oh, Lucian, or so he just went with Lucky. There, he, he's also become pretty well known for having a scar on his face. Where did he get that scar? That was from the ride he took. They, it was said that they stabbed him threw him out for dead. What, what we pretty convinced happened is he got picked up for one of two reasons by some guys who wanted some information. I, I, I tend to lean towards that theory is they were actually after a more famous gangster at the time, Jack legs diamond, whom they knew Luciano was a cohort of. Hmm. Uh, the other theory is he was messing around with a detective's daughter, and there is some evidence that that was possible. Either case, as Luciano said much later in life, he goes, it wasn't gang guys that picked me up and beat me up. They don't leave you <laughs> alive. It was cops. It was either cops who wanted information. It was cops who wanted to teach him a lesson. You know, take your pick. But he was roughed up and thrown out on Staten Island. I don't even know that they wanted to kill him. I think they just wanted to beat him up. And he ended up getting knocked out cold. They may not have even intended that. The scars on the right side of his face down to his chin were caused by the beating, which he later threw out the myth and said they were wearing rings or brass knuckles. That's what did it. They didn't stab him. But they beat him so hard he was bleeding through his overcoat. Wow. Oh, geez. Uh, and, um, you know, look, there's been probably dozens of, uh, of movies in which Lucky Luciano is a character. Uh, you think of uh, films like, um, you know, uh, Bugsy, for instance. And uh, there's been right. a lot of TV shows with Lucky Luciano as a character, both versions of The Untouchables and Boardwalk Empire. As far as your concerned as sort of a, a Luciano historian. What do you think the the best cinematic or television depiction of Lucky Luciano has been? Hmm. <clears throat> this is a tough one. And, you know, uh, full disclosure, I, as a historian, I will admit I am immediately irritated when Hollywood adds too much Hollywood into a biopic. I understand why they do it. Sure. Um, and, and I guess what bothers me, not even as a historian, as a guy who got interested in this years before he became one is the fact that there's so much strange, strangeness to their stories. You don't need to embellish it. Like this shit is stranger than fiction, seriously. But to which interpretation of lucky was the most accurate. I don't know that any one was more accurate than the other. The, the one in Boardwalk Empire, I liked to an extent, to an extent. I, I say this, and I'm not even bashing Boardwalk Empire. Uh, you know, that was great. I think the Lucky Luciano movie of the 19, what was that, early 70s, I didn't like it at all. Um, just like the Murder, Inc. movie, I thought was garbage. Bugsy, as great as a Hollywood movie that was, uh, you know, Warren Beatty was, was great as Bugsy. Uh, they took a lot of creative license with the story. But I, 
I think, okay, they did all right with Lucky in that one only because he was in such limited play sure. to that point in time. Like, they only showed him when, you know, he was basically talking about the casino thing, what do we do? Uh, so to answer you, Frank, I haven't seen a televised or cinematic version of Lucky Luciano yet. Really? That, yeah, that I personally would. And also, full disclosure, probably because I'm waiting until I get to help pick <laughs> who and how that screenplay goes type of thing. I know that's me, but Lucky, there's, I don't know, I just, there's something about, like, it's, I have this weird thing, like, I want to get the story right. I, I do. I don't know why. I can't even put my finger on it, man. I know it sounds, like, obsessive or, or bizarre. I just, if they're going to do it, do it justice. Don't, you know, don't candy coat it, but at the same time, don't make him out to be something he wasn't. Speaking of the mob and the movies. Uh, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the film The Godfather. I spent a lot of time talking about it on the radio. How do you think The Godfather holds up in the annals of both movie history and mob history? In movie history, it's forever going to be truly one of the greatest films of the 20th century. Hands down. I don't think anybody can argue that. Um, in the annals of crime, I think from a pop a pop culture standpoint, we'll address that first. It's forever painted the picture of the romantic element of organized crime, and I, I don't even think I need to explain. I think everybody mm-hmm. probably get that. That's that romantic traditional kind of let's live vicariously through that. And it is. It's fun. It's exciting. It's sad. It's got all the elements of a great tragedy, but in a way that you don't feel bad after you watch it. How, though, on the flip side, not pop culture, but real organized crime, I think it's always going to be a staple. Like every mob guy, I don't care if you're in a cartel or the mafia or something, they all watch it um, and enjoy it because it's an enjoyable film by people, period. But does it truly reflect what the mob was and is? No, not exactly. Um, and if you're, I'll, I'll just give you one example. I don't want to, you know, run off on this train. But the sitting down with the Salazzo scene about the drugs. Yes, there were some old traditional mob guys that weren't so keen on drugs, not so much of what it did to people, but because it would attract more unwanted legal problems. But as I and my colleagues have tried to show, and we got something coming out soon that hopefully really shows the whole drug thing um, that had been going on since the 19. 19- 20s mm. and everybody was making money from it so the godfather kind of made it almost a homogenized uh, or do i want to say sterilized kind of view of how a mob guy would look at drugs uh, and i and i get it you know he was supposed to be of this old school mentality but even a lot most of those guys frank i mean we, we have the evidence most of these guys were somehow involved 
in the narcotics trafficking. So that was just one example of, eh, you know, but other things that are like it, that family structure and, you know, you know Godfather 2, killing his own brother. Stuff like that's happened. We know. You're from New York. You know weird stuff has happened in the mob families. Oh, no question about it. You know, it's funny. When I was talking about The Godfather on the radio, I was I was uh, deluged with a, a couple of calls and emails and uh, social media correspondence of folks that said, I shouldn't be talking about The Godfather, shouldn't be promoting The Godfather, because it glorifies the mafia and gangsterism. How do you address that? You know, um, how do you address the fact that these cinematic masterpieces, whether we're talking uh, The Godfather, Father, Goodfellas, Casino, whatever the case may be, that there's this belief that they portray mob life in a positive, glorified light. What do you say to that? Yeah, uh, my first response to that, and, and Frank, I totally understand when someone's concerned about glorification of something that, that generally is, is a negative thing. I, I get that. However, First, with the movies, Scarface, Godfather, Goodfellas. Yes, it's entertainment. And if it wasn't mm-hmm. entertaining, no one would make any money off the movies. Right. So, of course, someone can interpret that as glorification because, yeah, and I've talked to some detectives uh, who told me, you know, hey, I, we kick in a door, go into this crack house, and they've got, you know, Scarface poster up. Of course, just like a lot of teenagers had a Scarface poster up in the 80s. And, and yes, I'm sure a lot of mob guys have a Scarface poster. Does, did Scarface make organized crime? No. Did The Godfather? No. That stuff is a product of something that actually existed that maybe society just doesn't want to look at in the mirror and say, guess what? The drugs... The homicides, the racketeering, the underhanded and back alley handshakes, guess what? They happen in real life. This is just entertainment versions. I, I'll be honest. There are times when I've written my books and I worried. I'm like, oh, I hope they don't think I'm glorifying this. And then other times where I think I don't really give a damn if they do. And I don't mean that to be... Uh, you know, how do I want to say this? It's just, look, I'm painting the whole, I'm trying to paint the picture, the whole thing. And some of it may seem like I'm putting this guy down and other parts may seem like I'm putting him on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. That's because history seems to show us multiple sides of people. And I don't, you know, I don't think anyone's one dimensional. So there's going to be that. Yes, I get it. People are going to say the Godfather just glorified it. Well, it was a Hollywood movie. <laughs> That's Hollywood movies are to glorify so they can make money. And I'm not putting that down. Of course they are. And my books. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, I put lucky Luciano on a comic book because it fascinates me. I, I, I it, does that make it wrong? Maybe in some people's view. You know, am I glorifying him? I don't know. I I like to think I'm pointing out that, hey, whether you like it or not, this guy was a major part of American history. Uh, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying you better look at it because it fits in. If you want to look at the 
you know, the fathers of the Industrial Revolution, as far as I'm concerned, they were the real criminals who did a lot of stuff and got away with it. You know, at least these guys, yeah, I don't want to say they were honest about it, but everybody knew what they did. We'll we'll put aside the question of the criminality of the Industrial Revolution for a future podcast. <laughs> uh, it's about more than I'm ready to tackle today. But ha- has writing about the mob uh, these days uh, gone? For, ha- it seems like writing about the mob used to be primarily a current events story. You'd be talking about the latest mob crimes, the latest mob characters, the latest mob trials. These days, it seems like most of the people that write about the mob, including yourself, treat it as you do. And writing writing about the mob has essentially become writing about history. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that writing about the mob has become, it's gone from reporting about current events to being a historian? Well, Frank, I just have to tell you, that's pro- that's one of the most interesting insights like thrown at me. Uh, to say that. Uh, in fact, you've characterized it better than I could. It's, it, it, it's exactly it, in my view. And uh, to, to take your words, because you said it, it, it is a case where I think the press and, uh, you know, understand their view of, uh, and, you know, specifically with the 20th century, because we're in a different era. So I'll just go with the whole 20th century. The press had their purpose. The law enforcement had their purpose, and each gave historians amazing wealths of information. Even some of the mobsters, the ones that you know we later called rats and stuff, fortunately, they gave us some insight, too, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for better or worse, but it gave us insight. What I think has happened is exactly what you said. Now, instead of looking at it like this is going to be a headline and, you know, this bad guy did X and this, you know, police officer did Y, it's more, here's how this fits not just into history, but culture, pop culture, economics, socioeconomics, everything from racial and uh, economic disparity to psychology, which, by the way, just to go back to that whole thing of glorification, I'll say this with no hesitation. Most, if not all of these guys could probably be called sociopaths. I know that psychologists don't really use that term as openly now in, you know, in psychopath. Some were outright psychopaths, and most were opportunists and narcissists, and then sociopaths, which those fit into that. I'm not a psychologist, but you study enough of this. That's not glorified. I'm saying even Lucky Luciano, who I'm fascinated by, but he was a historical figure. And again, this is for another show. You may have even addressed this before. I don't want to get into like statues and who people have a poster on their wall, and what's right and wrong. But the thing is, if something is historical, had a place in it for better or for worse. It's still a part of history that makes the larger society what it is for better or worse. I don't think you can negate it, get rid of it, or ignore it. I I think all of it matters. So, you know, someone says, oh, they're glorifying Lucky Luciano because they make a movie out of them. No, they're not. Well, I mean, they, they may, but if 
you know, most historians realize we're historians. It's history. So I hope that, yeah, you said it best. I just dragged it out. No, no, no. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, Good stuff. Before I let you go, uh, this is probably a question I should have given you in advance to give you a little bit of time to think about, but it just occurred to me, so I'm going to throw it at you anyway. One of the things that I've been so amazed by in whatever field you're talking about, whether you're talking comedy, talk radio, uh, acting, uh, theater, writing, uh, music, there's always this uh, a a large number of people who the public at large hasn't heard of, but who folks in that field say, oh, oh, you know, you might never have heard of that guy, but he's the best stand-up comic I've ever seen. Oh, you might not have ever seen that actor, but you might have ever heard of him, but he's the best actor I've ever seen. In your view, who is the highest ranking organized crime figure um it doesn't matter if it's living or dead who most americans have no idea who they are great question and i will keep it short at at the top there are so many that's why i say every era it was like an ensemble cast you just had a poster boy if we're going to talk about the post uh, poster boys that maybe people didn't even know I do believe Luciano was kind of overshadowed in in the larger international scale to Capone. And I understand why Capone, you know, was made who he was. But if you're talking about if I had to pick a singular one that's a bigger name but not is known, I'd say Luciano. I really do believe that's why I wrote all the stuff about him. But there are so many characters, even from different cities, that, that if you, like, someone even remotely interested would read it and be like, wow, you know, I had no idea because to answer your question, all of this is an ensemble cast. Mm. There may have been poster boys and poster girls, but there was individuals within it that got overshadowed usually by the press and who they chose. Like Capone was the one that, you know, they, they wanted to make Mr. Bad Guy for decades and you know and gaudy gaudy in the 80s like that overshadowed like you know and and don't get me wrong they got that notoriety for a reason it's just if i had to pick one frank i would say even if you're not into this stuff yeah read something about luciano i I think it was fascinating even the people around him that show up in his stories are, are pretty interesting and had a big role in history before i let you go Uh, I can't let you go without asking about why we care about this stuff. This many years after all these characters have died, uh, whether we're talking about high-profile mobsters from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, we're still talking about them. People are still making movies and writing books and doing comic books and doing podcasts about them. What is it about the mafia that has so captured the attention, the imagination, and the curiosity of the American public? In short, I think pop culture embraced it. It fit perfectly in pop culture because it's this weird underworld, a netherworld of of things that, you know, 99% of the population never really experienced. It's uh, part living vicariously through characters who, you know, are are outlaws. Um, I think the fact that it actually is a real entity that in some form or another still exists today and will probably never go away 
that we're drawn to it. Uh, I think psychologically we want to under, try to understand why are doing shows like Forensic Files and you know Gangsters America's Most Evil. Why are they so popular? Because we're trying to understand this flip side of society because it runs parallel with our everyday lives, whether we're seeing it or not. I think there, you know what, to be honest, Frank, I'll close it with this. I think there's kind of that romantic, cool thing that we kind of want to get out of it, whether that's real or imagined, but come on, we kind of do, you know? This is for real, my last question. Uh, the you, You've written extensively about Lucky Luciano. You've probably followed his life and career as closely as anybody. One of the things that I've always found interesting about Lucky Luciano is that the government, uh, the United States government, had no problem partnering with him and working with him during World War II, even though they knew that he was a criminal. Uh, we've seen a lot of other instances of the government, whether it's the FBI or the CIA or other government entities, partnering with the mob or organized crime figures. We've seen it with uh, Greg Scarpa, a high-ranking member of the Colombo crime family. We've seen it with Frankie Blue Eyes Sparaka. We've seen it with James Whitey Bulger, uh, Lucky Luciano and uh, Frank Costello, as I mentioned. How, how common is that uh, for government agencies like the CIA and the FBI to actually collude with leading organized crime figures to carry out things like assassinations or uh, do the kinds of things that the government needs done but may not want to get its hands dirty doing. In those shadowy back alley deals, I, I, I think it's like this. Um, every decade, every era is a realization. If you want to get something done, who is the most powerful or able-bodied group to do it. If the government thinks it's in the best interest, and this isn't even a criticism, this is like an observation. I think like in the case of with Castro and the Cuba thing, if that is indeed true, well, who else would you go to to try to hit Castro? You know, go to the people that are most known for it. Whether that was accurate or not, I do believe that if a government entity thinks it would be in the benefit, and if an underworld entity thinks it would be in their benefit, there are handshakes behind the scenes. I think it's been going on since, yes, uh, at least back into the time of Luciano mysteriously getting pardoned. Well, he wasn't even pardoned, so that's another story, but released from prison and exiled was the deal. But what did he do? Eh, nobody knows exactly what he did, but there was something that the government got out of it or was worried would get out of it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think it goes on CIA with, you know, drug lords, all the things. Is everything true? Probably not. But I bet there's a lot we don't know because it's almost like opportunism finds opportunists. So, you know, one hand, one, you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I, I definitely don't think it's beyond the realm or, you know, it's not folklore and myth that these deals have taken place. I absolutely believe they did. Christian Cipollini, it has been a real pleasure. I hope we can do this again soon. I'm wishing you the best of luck with your books, with your comics, with uh, a forthcoming film. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll stay in touch regularly and you'll come back soon. 
Thanks, Frank. I really appreciate it. If you want to be a pal, you can share this podcast with some friends on social media or send it to them via email. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe and encourage other friends to do so. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.